Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi everyone, I'm Eric Arno, and this is part two of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast featuring the theme Practice, recorded at the lovely Chicago Design Museum during this year's Design Week. Uh, this episode has a bunch of wonderfully talented people who contributed to the museum's latest exhibit, Unfolded, like Viana Newman, Bob Faust, and Marcin Sheff, plus Nerdalogs founder Kevin Reeder and museum executive director Tanner Woodford. Uh, you also get music from me, Dwight Hassler, and Claire Friedman in this episode. What a great uh, deal. Uh, before we get to the show, I want to again thank our sponsors for this episode, Cards Against Humanity, and thanks to the entire Chicago Podcast Co-op for hooking us up with that sponsorship. The co-op is fantastic, and if you're a podcaster or business owner in Chicago and want to get in on this amazing partnership, going uh, go to chicagopodcastcoop.com for more information on that. Uh, thanks also to you lovely listeners who support us on Patreon. That helps us keep doing cool stuff and maybe even do more of it. Uh, for more information on how you can do that and get rewarded, go to patreon.com slash nerdalogs. Um, thanks, of course, to everyone who listens, regardless of Patreon donation. If you want to do us a solid for free, you can rate and review this show on iTunes. Uh, that helps more people find the show, and hopefully, uh, since you enjoy it, you want to turn other people onto it, too. That would be really sweet. And if you don't enjoy it, why are you listening right now? Um, one final plug. This episode and last week's wouldn't have been possible without the Chicago Design Museum. Uh, for more information on the museum, including how you can help support a great Chicago institution that does a lot of good for a lot of people, head over to shydm, that's C-H-I-D-M dot com. Uh, thanks everyone for giving us your ears. Now enjoy what we've got to say. Uh, Claire, you have a story about why we're going to play this song for practice, right? I do. I do have a, a story about it. Um, so Eric asked for songs that we had to work on a lot, and uh, I for a very long time had a, a phobia of singing in front of people but still sang very loudly by myself in my dorm room so everyone on the floor could hear me and I just pretended they couldn't. Um, and we, our, our dorm had like a, a competition talent show-esque thing where it was like, oh, 
you know, there's like a rock band tournament and like a singing contest and the other people on my floor were like, Claire, you should do it. We hear you. <laughs> Uh, and I said that I wouldn't do it without my friend Claire, who lived next to me, who's a separate, different person. Um, and this is the song we chose, and we practiced for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then got totally cheated out of the title. Because? Oh, because the head judge had a crush on other Claire's boyfriend. <laughs> scandal. Right? I mean, it was already a scandal because she was dating an RA, so like, those two worked together, but like, it's... No, 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 I meant this is a song by Scandal. Is this not The Warrior? No, it's not. Oh. <laughs> Shooting down the walls of heartache. No, okay. This is this is a song by the patron saint of college freshman women. Also true. <laughs> I gotta finger pick this shit. It's Regina Spector. It is Regina Spector. Yes, it's the answer to madness. And it's good. 
second of two songs that I worked on really hard when I first picked up a guitar. I said Elton John was the guy that made me want to do music. This is the guy that made me want to play guitar. And this is uh, Eric Clapton. I'll give this a shot. A lot of finger picking today. I don't normally do that. song eighth grade and now I'm in I'm way past grades I don't even know I'm 32 as of Monday oh. 
thank you. I'll, I'll collect my presents after the show. I, I really want that new Chuck Holsterman book, so I hope somebody bought it for me. Uh, anyway, so coming up first to the stage again in this half, we have another person who works here at the Design Museum. She is on the curatorial committee. Uh, this is Viana Newman. Yeah. Either one. They're both live. Okay. Hi. So this this show is called Nerdalogs, right? This this is what I've read. Okay. So so far everyone's been like, I'm a designer, I sing, I play the guitar, I defy thieves at gunpoint. Well guess what? <laughs> guess what? I'm a nerd. So I'm gonna talk about that. <laughs> So originally, I was a little bit nervous when Tanner invited me to do this podcast, and I think it's because when I think about practice, I feel like it's generally something I've avoided in my life. Um, My piano playing career began in the second grade and ended about three weeks later uh, when I decided I was really not interested in practicing. Uh, I did stick with the clarinet a little bit longer for a few years, but... Eventually, I was just kind of disappointed at my lack of progress, probably because I wasn't practicing. Uh, dance class, I was a little bit better. I stuck with that for a really long time, but also usually like right before class, I'd be like, hey, what were the steps from last week? Like, it, you know, it, it was that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, maybe not the best topic. But then I thought about it a lot more, and I realized actually that practice, or maybe lack of practice in some instances, have been a really important part of my life, and uh, it's also been what's made me a nerd, I think. Um, So it started really early. My parents decided that I would be a nerd when at the age of two, uh, they made me learn the Latin names of bones Um, so that I wouldn't be afraid of skeletons anymore. And it worked. It actually worked. So good thing to remember if you have kids. Um, My first actual memory of practicing, since I managed to push that out of my head, was practicing for the spelling bee, which happened every year in in elementary school. And it was lots of drilling of words every year. And every single year, I would win at the class level, and then I would get to the school level and not get any further than that. Uh, And I think this was an important lesson because it taught me that no matter how much of a nerd you are, there is always someone out there who is nerdier than you are. Uh, And if you can't name someone who is there might be a problem. (laughs) So spelling bees, I guess, led into Shakespeare camp, uh, which I did for five summers. Yeah, I said five. Uh, Which was a lot of practicing. Theater, as you know, involves that. Um, So it's probably not a surprise then that I did forensics through all four years of high school, uh, focused on individual events, and usually, uh, you know, before a tournament, I would have weeks to practice. I could practice the lines, I could practice the movement, practice voice, everything. Um, but the last tournament I participated in was my senior year. I was super busy, and I decided, I don't really know why, to do Mark Twain's speech from his 70th birthday. And because of my busy schedule, I ended up having about two days, really two nights, to transform myself into 70-year-old Mark Twain. Uh, And I was really convinced that I would do very poorly because of my lack of practice. Uh, As it turns out, I ended up getting second place that Saturday in the tournament. Um, And I was 
basically as proud of my lack of practice as I was of, <laughs> of actually getting that trophy. <laughs> um, so later on in college, um, practice was also definitely important. Uh, and if you think I'm talking about something like beer pong, uh, let's remember who we're dealing with here. <laughs> um, as part of my Italian major, I took a theater class. And over the whole course of the semester, um, the small cast that I was in rehearsed a play. And a few weeks into this process, our director, who is Italian, said to us after one rehearsal, you all sound like native Italians. And we just, you know, we couldn't believe that she had said that. And so, you know, I think the final performance was really good, but that was an instance where just this one random practice in the middle of our process, we had really hit our peak. Um, so sometimes, sometimes success happens just as you're practicing, since that seems to be how it works. Um, right at the end of college, I was invited to be a graduation speaker just at my small major graduation. Um, and of course, I thought, okay, I'm going to write something, I'm going to practice it, I'm going to rehearse it, it's going to be great. Um, and in those frantic last days of college where you're you know, saying goodbye to that part of your life and moving and all of that, I really had no time or energy to do that. Um, and so really for the first time in my life, I did something pretty big without being able to practice at all. Um, and, you know, it probably wasn't the best speech anyone's ever given, but I got a genuine applause and a lot of positive feedback, even from people who weren't my Jewish parents. So that was really, that was really fulfilling. Um, but, you know, I feel like we're taught from a young age that, you know, practice makes perfect. Um, but I think that often perfection, or at least success, happens in the context of practice, um, or sometimes even without any sort of practice. And, you know, doctors and lawyers get to call their professions practices, and that's such a nice privilege. But really, I feel like all of life is practice, right? We don't, you know, living our lives isn't some performance that we know how to do perfectly and that we're prepared for. Every living, breathing, breathing moment is practice. Um, there are just some things you can't practice for, though, even though we think you can. Like I was thinking about it, interviews is something we really all practice for. Oh, man, i got to practice for this interview. Uh, will you help me? Will you ask me questions? Okay, yeah. So let me tell you about an interview that I just couldn't practice for. Um, it was back in high school, and it was going to be an interview with Harvard. And they sent in a bunch of folks, alumni from Harvard, to our high school, and they were meeting with us one evening to interview us and, you know, see what well-developed awkward high schoolers we were. Uh, and they call me into the room, and it turns out to be a room that I had a class in that year, which is already a little awkward. Uh, and I introduced myself, and my interviewers introduced themselves, and you know, I really steeled myself for this moment. And they say, okay, well, I'm Judy, and I'm Kevin. And I said, that's weird. Those are my parents' names. <laughs> uh, so couldn't really practice for that one. Um, you know, <laughs> the interview went, uh, I think, you know, it was pretty well. I was talking about, you know, all my accomplishments and things I had done, and... Um, I did kind of remember as this was happening that a few weeks prior during class one day, uh, a mouse had kind of appeared just from somewhere in the classroom <laughs> and scuttled around and ran around some desks and, you know, there's some screaming and raised feet and then it disappeared again and we didn't really know where it went. Uh, so it was still potentially there. And so this evening, as I'm talking to Judy and Kevin, not my parents, about wanting to go to Harvard, probably as the words, the reason I want to go to Harvard are, as those words come out of my mouth, the mouse reappears and scuttles around the room, and that's probably why I didn't go to Harvard. <laughs> that's all. Thank you.
Juliana. Practice, practice, practice. Guys, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Well, you get on I-90, you're going to want to go east for comedy. Hey, everybody. Thank you. Who's that? Is that Dwight back there? You, Dwight, you tell some of your jokes. Lounging at that table over there. Guys, coming up next to the stage, we have the principal and design director at Faust, a cultural branding and communication studio. This is no surprise, Bob Faust. And an amazing shirt, by the way. Thank you. You're welcome. Tanner, you scared me with this offer as well. Um, and this story is called Fear Is Not Real. I grew up in a giant Italian-run family, my grandmother being the oldest of 20 kids. Imagine that, 20 kids, and she's the oldest. <laughs> she and her 19 siblings were actually invited and driven from their farm in Franklin Park to the Chicago World's Fair in downtown Chicago in 1933, only to realize that when they got there, that they were actually being presented almost like a freak show, being billed as America's largest Italian-American family. <laughs> Swear to God, they were fed spaghetti lunch, spaghetti lunch, at an oversized table in one of the exhibition halls. And there's a photo of this that actually made Time magazine, so I know it's real. <laughs> Whew, my grandmother had seven kids of her own, each with decent-sized families which netted me about 36 immediate cousins within a three-mile radius that I had to find my place among. Awesome for sure, but not necessarily easy. Between this and the fact that Catholicism ruled every thought I had, put fear at the center of my early learning. No one was really trying to scare me. That's just how it was. Don't do this, otherwise mom will be disappointed. Don't do that, otherwise dad will be embarrassed of you. And that parlayed into me heeding almost every warning anyone ever gave me. I literally went through my early life thinking that if I swore I was going to go to hell, that if I masturbated I was going to go to hell, that if I was gay not only would I go to hell but my life on earth would be a living one, <laughs> and other irrational fears too, fears of food. These weren't just aversions, they were full out fears, stupid shit like peas and corn niblets. Corn served on the cob was okay, but cut the niblets loose, and I couldn't sit at the table. <laughs> it was so well known among my highly competitive and super macho cousins that these foods could be used as weapons against me and to get a laugh from others. I remember one Easter, I must have been about 10, we were all sitting at a long table, 30 people at each side, the parents at one end, all the cousins at the other. I was on red alert knowing tiny, green, potential projectiles were being served. My older, brother, my older cousin, Kevin, had a pile of peas on his plate. He flicked one at me. Huge grin on his face. <laughs> I remember watching it all happen like it was slow motion. It hurtled over my brother's plate and straight toward me. I let out the highest-pitched screech <laughs> at this fancy Easter dinner. It's funny to you, right? <laughs> but it was a compound living nightmare that day. The pee was one thing. The flying pee was one thing. But now this girly screech in reaction to a flying pee 
It could be used to call me a baby, a sissy, or worse, a girl. I was becoming aware of how being at all effeminate could impact my acceptance in this family. All said, fear ruled my early years. And to combat this, I worked my ass off to keep situations like this far, far away from me. I thought if I did everything to be a model kid, get good grades, involve myself in clubs, play sports, I could handle the ones with balls being thrown my way. Maybe folks wouldn't notice my insecurities or make fun of my peculiarities and my differences. I thought if I could be perfect, life would be as well. And so I used practice makes perfect motto to get through life. We've all said this tonight. I got so good at being good that I believed this person I made up was actually who I was. I lived a picture-perfect life for 45 years this way. Lovely family, beautiful home, great career with tight work that was being celebrated by my peers, all attained while in full denial of who I was. This is sounding a little bit like a sad story, but it's not. (laughs) I loved my life as it was, and all these fears actually helped me hone my design skills and by particularness. They contributed to real accomplishments, relationships, and great times. In a way, practice did make perfect. Perfect in air quotes. For the podcast. (laughs) But I eventually had to face that I wasn't living my truth. Perfection sidesteps truth. It lacks warmth, comes with compromised emotions, and turns its back on genuine, genuine humanness. I thought to myself, maybe the safety I was seeking in perfection could also be found by confronting fear instead of avoiding it. So I stepped into it. And that created a shitstorm, which led to a lot of extremely tough stuff, including a priest and several therapists, the former assuring me I'm not going to hell, and the latter teaching me fear is not real. That fear is only a feeling assigned to predictions of the future. It was a profound statement and has since become my daily mantra. Fear may have have kept me from making mistakes, but it also kept me from making amazing shit. Today I live an extremely different life, a very imperfect but very impactful one. I'm considerably more vulnerable in many ways, but exponentially stronger and ready for almost anything. Letting go of the idea of perfection opens the door to really big emotions and possibilities. Love is abundant and easy. Compassion comes quickly. And the work that I was doing that was always so tight, with perfect rags and beautiful headlines, I even kerned my body text. I swear to God, I kerned the body text in the words, in the text. Now exploded with a different kind of energy. I don't worry about the typographic rules I learned in high school, the trends in the industry, or how another, might, another designer might judge it. I focus how I can instill an emotion in it. While I love clarity in design, high-level impact, and using design to create memories trumps it every time. I trust the craft I've honed to keep me from going too far and now claim the dual title of artist and designer as it allows for my spirit to come through all my work, even that work for clients. All said, I'm by no means fearless, but there's a big difference. While I still can't stand speaking in front of you, 
That's why I'm reading. I now know the shitty things I thought you all would be saying about me after this are likely not true. From here on out, I suggest we shift the saying, practice makes perfect, to practice makes possible. And to quote a very important person in my life, step into your fears and use them as fuel. first timers that was amazing if anyone says shit about you bob just send them to me it's not nice guys bob did great why would you say those things about him come on we all love each other here it's design week of all weeks it's holy is design week cool are you guys having a good time on design week all right a couple people are few you lecture all right, that's all good. That's all good. Coming up next, we have a project architect, a senior associate and technology director at John Ronan Architects. This is Marcin Chef. So on top of being an architect, I'm also part of the museum and been part of it since the beginning. So this story is how a small four-year-old Polish immigrant boy came to knowing everybody at the museum and collaborating with everybody here uh, with all the wonderful designers uh, most importantly not only designers but human beings and beyond um, so I'm going to steal a little bit of a move from Nick Adam uh, raise your hands if you're an architect only one in the room <laughs> raise your hand if you've ever used a pneumatic nail gun alright there's a couple of us good so I'll talk about the nail, the nail gun in a second, but as an architect, I'm a designer of space, which is very different than a designer on paper or so forth. So how did I become a designer of space? Well, actually I got lucky enough where I first became a designer because I built a lot of stuff. Um, since I was a little good kid here when I first migrated here with my dad, if you're a Polish immigrant in Chicago, you're either a cleaning lady or you're an architect or a contractor. And so my dad was a contractor in the suburbs. Um, since I could remember, after school, I'd always go to the job sites that were local in our neighborhood and be the cleanup crew. So we'd ever always clean up in the, on the job site and make sure the, the site was clean the next day for the crew there. Um, slowly and slowly, I became a little bit older, maybe 11, 12 years old, and became a superintendent on a job site, which meant a little bit more responsibility, but that also meant that I got to collaborate with all my uncles, which were the subcontractors to my dad. Because if you're Polish in Chicago, there's a lot of us here. <laughs> um, through that, I got to really learn how to collaborate with all of them, from plumbers to HVAC to uh, framers to roofers to landscapers to everybody, and even the, the clients themselves, because they were constantly changing their mind on what they wanted. So you're always kind of working on the fly. So I got to learn firsthand how to really build stuff with materials that created space. Uh, not really the, the visual things you see, but really how the people use the space uh, as an architect. Um, later on, I learned that was very valuable. Um, going to school, obviously I kind of took that under my wing that I actually knew how to build, so I started working with machines. Machines started becoming my collaborators, CNC machines, computer numeric controlled museums, uh, machines, and started becoming really good friends with machines and figured out how machines can build and create spaces. Uh, from then on, I became a real architect, which is very boring. Right now, as a project architect, it all means is that 
my job is to make sure that our vision as architects becomes reality because we're not the ones building it, the contractors are. So my conversations are always with contractors and with clients to figure out how that gets built to make sure that budget cuts doesn't, don't cut out every vision that we had at the beginning. Um, but through that, I got to figure out how to really understand how physical materials and physical construction really happens um, through the vision of somebody else. And through that, I learned that because of consultants that you have and through professional practice, it's really not about what I think, it's really about how collaboratively everybody thinks about the space and what is the vision for the space. Uh, which leads me to the museum. Why am I here and how did I get here? Um, my brother happened to live with me who helped create the museum with Tanner. And every time they were coming up the first exhibition, um, which was in an office space, he would come home and it was all graphic designers, never picked up a pneumatic nail gun um, or a spatula with um, mud on it for drywall or painting. Uh, so the question was, how do you turn an office space, a, a defunct office space, into a gallery space for a, or a month? And my brother would always come home and ask, hey, how did you do this? So it turned into sketches, which then turned into me volunteering, patching holes to me volunteering and staying on for the last X amount of years, um, which has been great. Um, and because of that, I've got the chance to not only practice as an architect professionally, but also practice as a builder again um, at the museum, which is very, uh, I'm very humbled to be able to have that, that experience here. Um, not only design the spaces and the exhibits, but also be able to collaborate and help uh, teach people how to use a pneumatic nail gun, um, which the reason why I bring up the pneumatic nail gun is uh, it's very sentimental to me. When I was eight years old, my uncle, who was a, one of the subcontractors, gave me a pneumatic nail gun as my uh, birthday gift. Because um, we used to build everything with scraps and nails, and he was like, well, you're not being very efficient. Why don't you have a nail gun? So I got a nail gun from him. And since then, I've probably gone through 20 dozen of them. Um, and that's my joy whenever someone wants to learn how to do it, uh, use it at the museum, we get the chance to teach everyone how to use that amongst other tools. Um, so as an architect, as a builder, I get to do this again at the museum and the exhibit you see behind you is kind of a, a collaborative experience between not just me, but everybody that is part of the exhibition design team, but also the museum, but also all our volunteers who always come in and help us build the exhibits. And that's not our vision, but it's a vision amongst all the other designers that are in Chicago, across the world, having an idea. And we get to come here, play around, create mock-ups, and then create an exhibit that not only is very beautiful, but also a space that also creates a unique background for artists to come in and exhibit their work. Um, at the end of the day, I'm an architect, uh, and I have to think, like, how do I get the contractors to do everything? But really, my side job, which is this, is actually what I'm really most happy to do because I get to collaborate with so many people. And I think my professional practice and my personal practice is not only, my, the results of it is only as good as the wonderful people I get to collaborate with. And it's due to everyone's inspi inspiring backgrounds and understanding of their design and what it means to create a space. So cheers, Nazdrovia.
everybody. Wonderful, wonderful work on this museum. This place is so great. I love this exhibition. So many people you saw tonight helped with this exhibition. It's super wonderful. We have one more storyteller tonight. He is, I don't know, this is a stretch, but you know what I'm going to say? You're the designer of the Nerdalogs. This, this gentleman created the Nerdalogs six years ago, uh, asked me to be a part, and uh, I don't know, it's been pretty wonderful. So let's hear from Mr. Kevin Reeder. Practice makes perfect. If that is true, then what I have practiced the most, I must be the nearest to perfection at. Sleep is probably the thing I've spent the most time in my life doing. It's probably the thing we've all spent the most time in our lives doing. Sleep. I do it mostly every night. But I'm far from perfect at it. And I should know how to do it. And I should be the best at it. See, from 2010 to 2015, I was a sleep researcher at a university in Hyde Park. I'll let you guess which one. I'll let you guess. <laughs> Still like my old boss, so I don't want to get too much. Too, I don't want to talk too bad about, about it, but here we go. Um, we were interested in learning how people slept in their homes. See, in sleep research, all of the information that's gathered about people's sleep is done in a sterile, hospital-like setting. It's seen as the gold standard, a controlled, neutral environment. That is how medical research is done. But the team I worked with wanted to challenge that idea. If you've ever slept at a hospital, hotel, or anywhere that isn't your home, you'll know that you don't sleep in the same way. Right? Right? Yes. Yes. That is true. Thank you. <laughs> it is true. Trust me. So to challenge the status quo, the team, also known as Kevin, would travel to people's homes that I didn't know. I would look around, jot down what I saw, and hook them up to wires, medical equipment, and study how they slept. A true, honest-to-goodness biomedical anthropologist. I was doing it, gang. <laughs> I've been to pretty much every neighborhood in the city of Chicago. Me, carrying a small black rolling suitcase full of medical equipment, ringing doorbells, knocking on doors. I was like a weird door-to-door -door salesman peddling the idea of better sleep. <laughs> no doors were ever slammed in my face, but I've experienced just about everything else. Parking downtown in the winter, walking a mile to a person's home, Sweating through my shirt in the dog days of summer while dripping my own sweat onto them. Not cool. Their fault. They didn't have air conditioning. <laughs> Hooking up medical equipment to people while an aggressive dog barks at you for 40 minutes. Hoarders. Weird roommates staring at you while drinking. It's a thing. People sleeping naked. Also, traveling to the suburbs. All of it. It's awful. Oh, so awful. Oh, that was the worst. Oh, you don't even know. Two hours driving to Valpo, Indiana. Ugh. Oh, you have not lived. Okay. And what have I learned? People suck at sleep. I'm a person. I suck at sleep. Do you want to sleep better? Yes. Of course you want to sleep better. Everyone does. It's pretty simple. Here's all you have to do. Eat well. Exercise. Don't drink caffeine after 5 p.m. Don't drink booze two hours before you're going to go to bed. 
Turn off all your lights, devices, and all your other hoopla about an hour before you go to bed. Have a nice, stable temperature in your bedroom every night. Oh yeah, and go to bed at the same time every night and wake up at the same time every morning. That's all you gotta do. <laughs> Practice makes perfect. thank Kevin because he literally had no notice. He just walked in and we said, somebody didn't show up, can you stand up and say something? And he, like a champ, said, hell yeah. Uh, so I want to thank you guys all for coming as well. Um, I promised Eric I wouldn't say anything tonight. He begged me and I said, hell no. I'm not interested. Uh, but I really, like this has been a really amazing experience. It's been really fun to see all the different perspectives from people who have volunteered once or twice for the museum to people who have been very deeply involved. It's been really amazing to see sort of, um, not only how people celebrate their time outside of work, but how they celebrate their time outside of work, outside of work. <laughs> because the museum is already outside of work. Um, I came up with a theme of practice, uh, kind of on a whim, uh, and through this evening, I've realized that I actually don't really believe in practice. Uh, which kind of sucks for the last nine people that just told stories. Uh, I believe in doing. I believe in doing and then learning by doing. And I think that some of that is inherently practice. So when we laid out the floor in this room, for example, uh, Marson was, I mean, Marson was here, a lot of these folks were here. We actually laid out the floor, looked at it, walked on it, talked about it, and then changed it. And for me, that's how my design practice works. We try things, we fail miserably, like we've all talked about tonight. We try them again, we change them, we look at them, we try them, we change them again, we look at them, and then we come to a conclusion. Normally the conclusion happens because the doors have to open. And that's how my practice works. Uh, so it's been really fun to hear everybody here talk about practice, and uh, I guess if I were to have any closing words, it would be to jump in and do it. Uh, so without further ado, uh, we have one last song from Eric Garneau. And come. Man, what's all that shit Kevin said? Uh, eat well, exercise. That's what? Do it, guys. Thank you so much for coming. I love being at the Design Museum. You all are wonderful. Thank you to everyone who told the story. First timers, pros, everyone in between. You all were super great. Give it up for everyone. I'm Eric. This is Dwight. That's Claire. This is a song. We're not doing songs we got to practice anymore. This is a song about a person who practiced harder than anybody has ever practiced. And that's all we're going to say about it.
part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy your stories, you might also like Open Ended. Hosts Cher Vincent and James T. Green take a weekly dive into topics like tech news and code, code switching, and gender, uh, all wrapped in the comfort of listening to two best friends disagree. For more on Open Ended, go to openended.fm. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.